Heavenly Father, it's a very difficult question to really grasp. Why should we gain from Jesus' rewards? Why should we be given uh, forgiveness and freedom and righteousness and new life and Jesus take death and sin and anger and separation from God? Why that great exchange? And the answer rests in the apex, in the stunning brilliance of your love and your justice meeting at the cross at the moment that Jesus dies. And probably there is nothing more valuable and nothing more weighty than seeing that moment more fully and more clearly and living in the light of the brilliance of that moment of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, Lord, I, I do ask, without you opening our eyes and softening our hearts, it, it's impossible. So I ask, Lord, that you might do that work. That in Hebrews 4, we're told that your word is sharper, so sharp it cuts bone from marrow. It's the image of the surgeon's scalpel. And so I pray now that you would bring the scalpel of your word in the tender, steady hand of your spirit into our lives where there's a spiritual cataract that you would, you would clear that where there's a spiritual heart blockage you do that surgery where there's spiritual cancerous growths you would cut them out that your word would do your work by your spirit for your glory. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, please do take a seat. <clears throat> and uh, it would be fabulous if you had a Bible, if you've got a Bible. It would be fabulous if you opened it up to Ephesians. You can get some at the back if you'd, if you'd like one. It's on page uh, 1000. 173 Ephesians page 1173 and this is our our final talk in our journey about six months long journey through Ephesians this letter that was written and what I'm trying going to try and do this morning is to summarize the entire letter is to try and point us to where Paul has put some particular structural truths in the letter. What are the big things, if you like, that Paul wants us to know and to grasp? But let me start with a question. <coughs> what posture, what posture or what, what mental image most accurately describes for you, from your perception, from your perspective, Christianity? So what kind of posture, what image comes into your head that most for you captures what following Jesus might be about if you're not yet a Christian, or what following Jesus is about if you are seeking to do that. doesn't matter where you are really on a spiritual spectrum, doesn't matter how you're feeling today about Jesus, we're going to have our perception, our place, which we're viewing Christianity from. What posture most, most accurately describes it for you? Is it lounging on a deck chair? It's a posture of restfulness and relaxation and inactivity. Is that the posture that you have in mind? Is it uh, 
a bowed monk-like figure on his kneeling cushion in awe, reflective, centred, detached, otherworldly. Is it the posture of some more resilient and focused route march? Is that what you see? A military kind of figure, uh, an image of strong and clarity and a conquering determination. Or from your perspective, is it more the posture or the image of an unflinching protester? That in the face of waves of of culture or, or ideology, we will not be moved, even when a great big tank starts rolling towards you or the like. Unflinching, unshakable, convicted and solid. Is the dominant image of Christianity that that you have, of being a a follower of Jesus, is it more passive and receiving and restful? Or is it active and giving and lively? Which one is it in your your mind? It's slightly a trick question, I'll be honest. uh, Because it's all of them, or at least it should be. All of them. It should both be about a passive receiving restfulness and at the same time it should be about a lively, active, outgoing and energised faith, shouldn't it? To change the analogy slightly for a minute, it's almost like Paul, who's the writer of this letter, Ephesians, it's almost like Paul pictures himself as a spiritual physiotherapist. And he describes through his letter, he uses four images, four postures through his letter, as a good physiotherapist would, to say, actually, this is the full range of movements you need to be a healthy Christian, to have a healthy spirituality, to make life work, like any good physiotherapist, isn't he? A physiotherapist comes alongside, if you've ever had one, and they say, well, you've got to do, and they list various movements, don't they? And if you neglect one then the healing or the strength of your body won't be as complete or as full as it could be. Well, Paul comes along here and he says there's four postures, if you like. There's four things that if we want to be healthy followers of Jesus, if we want to be flexible in our spirituality, responding to culture and personal changes, if we want to be strong and able to stand firm against things that might batter us, if we want to have a a faith that will endure and have great stamina, then he says there's four postures that you need to practice, like any physiotherapist would come and tell you. The first one is we need to sit... That's his summary of chapters 1 and 2. The second one is that we need to kneel. That's his summary of chapter 3. The third one is we need to walk. That's his summary of chapter 4 and 5. And the fourth one is that we need to stand. That's his summary of chapter 6. You can see the first two are more passive and receiving, aren't they? Sit and kneel. And the second two are more active and lively and outgoing. They're to walk and to stand. I want to look at each one. And what I want you in your head to be asking, as Paul's laid this out here, is saying, if Paul examined my life and my spiritual body as the physiotherapist he is, where would he identify the weakness? Which exercise would he say we are not doing and there were at risk of becoming unbalanced, not having the flexibility we would not want, not having the strength spiritually we would want, not having the stamina. If we were reviewed, if we had an all-over body scan by Paul, what exercise would he point to that we need to improve on? Let's take the sit first of all, that God has done it 
all. It's his summary of chapters 1 and 2. He uses the image twice. First of all about Jesus. Look at chapter 1 and sentence uh, 20. Or I'll pick up halfway through sentence 19. This is what he says. Chapter 1, sentence 19. 1173 is the page number. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him, do you see the language, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So there's an image first of Jesus having sat down. Now, Jesus doesn't sit down like I sit down halfway through mowing the lawn. He's not sat down for a tea break when the job is half done. We live practically on a builder's site. Our house is a new development, practically a builder's site. There's 12 new houses going, being built literally out the front of our front window. And I know it's a stereotype, and I know there's some builders in the room right now, but they do have quite a lot of tea breaks. But watching them, I've never been as close up, it's a stereotype, isn't it? But watching them, I think they deserve quite a lot of tea breaks. It is really brutal work, especially with the weather that we've had the last couple of of weeks. But Jesus hasn't sat down in that sense. He sat down because he's tired and the job is half done and he needs to restore and recuperate. Jesus is sitting down in the sense of the job is done, isn't he? That's why he sat down. He sat down because nothing else is needed to be done. It is a finished sitting down. The job is complete. Did you see? It says there in chapter 1 that he sat down uh, with all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come as well. That's pretty all-conclusive kind of language, isn't it? There's nothing left for Jesus to conquer. There's nothing left for Jesus to reign over. Jesus has finished and he has sat down in heaven. The job is complete. There is nothing left to happen in terms of what Jesus needs to do. So in a weird kind of way, we do Jesus a massive disservice, a huge disservice, if we call him Jesus the Great. As if in some way he was alongside Alexander the Great, or Napoleon the Great, or Caesar the Great, or Churchill the Great. Actually, Jesus is not great. All of those great men and women of our world, part of their goal, part of their task, part of their life purpose was left incomplete, wasn't it? Jesus is not great. Jesus is Jesus the only. He has no rival or peer or competitor or equal. No one else has sat down because the job is finished. We sit down because the job is half done and we're tired and the ultimate sitting down is what is death. And do you think for one moment, friends, your or my life goals will be complete when we sit down at death? They won't, will they? But Jesus sits down because it's it's done. And what is stunningly remarkable is then Paul takes this imagery of Jesus having sat down and he uses it to describe the Christian's position. Look at chapter 2. Sentence 6. Chapter 1 is about Jesus and he sat. Chapter 2 is about that we have sat. Chapter 2, sentence 6 says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Do you see the language of being seated? But do you notice the little in Christ Jesus that's there? 
You see, Jesus is sat down, the job completed, because Jesus has done it. We are sat down, the job completed, because Jesus has done it. Do you see? In Christ Jesus. The remarkable good news of Christianity that Paul is saying we need to sit and realise and absorb and be rested in and lean into is that what Jesus has done is bestowed upon us. Jesus does everything. He's in utter rule. He's conquered it all. He sits down the job done and then he says, here's a seat for you. He gives us his achievement. That's incredible, isn't it? And so if you're wondering what is at the heart of Christianity, what is, what is Christianity really absolutely in its essence about, I think one of the best ways to illustrate it is like this, is to say Christianity is spelt D-O-N-E. Done. Everything else in our world, every other religion, every other worldview, every other way of functioning is spelt D-O. You must do. Think about it for a moment. Islam would say if you want a right relationship with God, if you want to sit at God's right hand, then you need to do certain things. You need to say a certain number of prayers. You need to give a certain amount of money to charity. And in radical Islam, you can fast forward the process by giving your life. But you need to do something to be accepted by God. In Hinduism, it says you need to do something. In Buddhism, you need to do something. You need to achieve enlightenment. You must act. In materialism, it's exactly the same. We're accepted in society most fully when we achieve most completely. Nice, middle class, upper middle class, they are the most accepted. Most options are available to you. You're the one who makes the decisions. It's about what you do, isn't it, to be accepted. Think about the classroom when you were a kid or your children right now in the classroom. How do you get accepted, welcomed in? How do you get a seat in the cool gang? By what you do. You put on the right shoes or you say the right words or you're good at the right sport and what you do leads to your acceptance, doesn't it? Think about the workplace you're in if you've the privilege of having paid employment for a moment. What do you have to do to be accepted? Well, you have to do something, don't you? You have to perform to a certain level. Your annual appraisals need to meet a certain mark. And if you do not perform, what happens? You get ejected. And Jesus comes along and says, actually, it's not about what you do. It's about what I have already done. You are seated. So the first position, if we want to be healthy, that Paul, the spiritual physiotherapist, says to us is to realize you are sat, is to begin by saying, I know that Jesus has done it all, and by trusting him, he bestows upon me all of that complete work. I have my seat in heaven. Now, I used to play a lot of sport, just pull into a lay-by for a moment, and I had those horrendous experiences as sports phys physiotherapists who basically are people who want to cause harm and hurt legally. That's basically what I've come to the conclusion of a sports specialist in physiotherapy is. I remember they gave me a little rubber um, block before I started a session once with a physiotherapist working on my hamstring. And I'm like, what, what, what's this for? He said, oh, you bite on that. I'm like, what? That's how painful it was. But the thing I most struggled with physically, with a physical physiotherapist, 
is they kept saying to me, Alex, you've got to let your body recover. You train and train and train. You have to have your rest days. Your muscles need to recuperate. Now, if we're activists by personality, there's a likelihood that's true about our faith. That we are not good at sitting. That if in your mind, when I drew that first analogy of saying, is your view of Christianity relaxing on a deck chair, receiving, and if your head you're going, no then there's a good chance that there's a risk you're going to spiritually overtrain. You're going to be a doer, which is not wrong, we'll see in a minute, moment, having not first realised it's been done for you. And what that does is it makes your spiritual flexibility, you stiffen up. You become a legalist, don't you? Because it's all about me doing something and the way I do it, it's not about what God has done. So you, you get quite rigid, don't you? And what it does to your spiritual strength is it massively weakens it because you become self-reliant on what you can do. And what it does to your spiritual stamina, well, it ruins it because you quickly get demoralised and demotivated. So is that where Paul, the spiritual physiotherapy, would point to your life and say, look, the motion, the movement you are not engaging in to be healthy, you're not just sitting and realising, wow, God has done it all. Second posture of the four is kneel. It's his summary image of chapter 3. Sit and then kneel. Pray that God would show you more. Pray that God would show you more. Look at chapter 3, sentence 14, if you've got the Bible open there. Chapter 3, sentence 14. Right-hand column of page 1174. This is what it says. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. And then he launches into a prayer. Now that word kneel in, Greeks, in, in Paul's Greek culture was used in three different contexts. It was used in a legal context, a religious context, and a commercial context. In the legal context, it was a word about kneeling in submission before a king. In the context of religion, it was about kneeling in awe before God. And in the commercial context, it was about kneeling in need before a benefactor who is going to give you something. And I think Paul has all those in mind, doesn't he? That we kneel, in, we kneel in submission and surrender before God, who is our king. We kneel in worship and awe before God, who is the only true splendid one. And we kneel in need, in dependence upon God, who was our great benefactor. There's a chap called Lord Kogan. I don't even know if I've pronounced that correctly. He's a former... Uh, Archbishop, who died in 2000, he draws this wonderful Coggan, I'm being told. There we go. Thank you to the uh, elders amongst us who remember him. This is what he says, and I love this little analogy around this idea of, of kneeling and its importance. There was a sculptor once, or so they say, who sculpted a statue of our Lord. And people came from great distances to see it, Christ in all his strength and tenderness. They would walk all round the statue, trying to grasp its splendour, looking at it now from this angle, and then from that. Yet still its splendour eluded them, until they consulted the sculptor himself. He would invariably reply, there's only one angle from which this statue can be truly seen. You must kneel. 
good that, isn't it? So the first posture that Paul has in mind, he says, do you sit and realise God has done it all? And actually there is nothing you need to do. There is nothing you need to do. God has done it all in Christ. You are literally, you could sit. It is done for you. But the second, realising it has been done for you, do you slip from your chair onto your knees in submission before the king, in awe before God, in dependence upon what he will give? And interestingly, what Paul actually prays here, what he's praying for them, having realised God has done it all, is that now God would show them more, that they would realise how much God has done. Look at a sentence, halfway through sentence 17, let me read the actual prayer he makes. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, that's what God has done, rooted and established us have in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp... How wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. There's no lack in the God's love for us, is there? He's praying they might perceive it. They might understand it. They might see it. It's a little bit like the reality that there is no deficiency in the splendour of the stars, is there? But there is massive deficiency in our ability to see them and understand them. So it is with God, what God has done. There is no deficiency in what God has done. The deficiency is our ability to see and understand what God has done. Let me read another quote on prayer. This has inspired me um, for uh, a couple of weeks now. In fact, I I paraphrased it at our recent leadership meeting at the beginning of the week. This is what a chap called A.C. Dixon, and I'll put my hand up. I've not been able to find out who A.C. Dixon is is or was, it's quoted in a book by John Piper. So if anyone know who A.C. Dixon is, uh, uh, then go for it. Hannah told me maybe it's the chap who's behind ACDC. Uh, That's not a bad joke, but it sounds like more, more, sounds like more like one of Matt's jokes, though, really, doesn't it? Anyway, this is what A.C. Dixon says. He says, when we depend upon organisations, we get what organisations can do. When we depend upon education we get what education can do. When we depend on man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. So if Paul examined your spiritual life as a physiotherapist, if he came with his medical hat on, would he identify you are not kneeling enough? That your spiritual health, your strength and stamina and flexibility are being eroded by the fact that you don't spend enough time doing the kneeling exercise, metaphorically speaking again. What's the third one? The third one is walk, the third image that Paul deliberately has put in his letter to help them remember it. Sit, kneel. The third one is walk. It's his summary now of chapters, what we call chapters 4 and 5. And repeatedly in chapters 4 and 5 he uses this analogy, this idea of walk. Uh, Except if you're using this, the church's Bible, or one of a similar translation, they've translated it with the word live instead to make it more attainable. This is about wherever your feet take you, live there to honour God. Look, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. It says live a life, but the original is walk in a manner 
worthy of the calling you've received. Chapter 4, sentence 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Uh, Chapter 5, sentence 2. He uses it again. He says, and walk in love. Or live a life of love is how it's translated. But walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8. For for you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And finally, chapter 5, sentence 15. Be careful then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as the wise. So this uh, third one is very much about wherever our feet take us. It's a good analogy by Paul, isn't it? Because actually, if he's saying, wherever you find your feet have taken you, wherever you walk, there you are to live in a way that honours Christ. Well, when are we not on our feet as such? Where in our life do our feet not take us? It's utterly all-encompassing, isn't it? He's saying, look, you've sat and you've received, you've realised God has done it all, you've fallen to your knees in worship, now is the time, in response to that, and this is the order, isn't it? In response to that, you get up and you walk, and wherever you go, you live for Jesus there. And he's incredibly practical, isn't he? Chapter 4 is mostly about the life of the church and our relationships, but chapter 5 into the beginning of chapter 6, he's really nitty-gritty, isn't he? He says some stuff about marriage that makes us squirm in our seats. He says stuff about parenting that puts a shadow over even our best attempts. He talks about the workplace. He talks straight to bosses and straight to employees. Nowhere is exempt from where we are to live for Jesus. And the order, friends, really matters. Sit. Realise God has done it all. Kneel in praise and prayer and dependence and then get up and walk. You do it the other way round, and you've turned it from God's gift to us to our attempt to earn something. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, Dr. Tim Keller, very helpfully draws this distinction. He says, religion says, if you obey, you could be accepted. Jesus says, you are accepted, so now you can obey. You see the difference? Sit, he's done it all for me. Kneel, and from that acceptance I stand up and try and live. Not, I walk first and show God how good I am at living my life. I'm busy, busy, busy. And then maybe I can sit down having done it all. Do you see the the wrong order? You see the wrong way round. I, over the last few years, this is, I mean, you might think this is daft, but over the last few years, I've tried, I've tried to counterculturally reverse how I understand my 24-hour rhythm. Because Western culture says, when does our day start in Western culture? Six o'clock in the morning, doesn't it, when you get out of bed. And so our day starts at six, don't we? That's what, how we think, isn't it? And what's, what do we do then? We work all day, don't we? Get the kids out, get the kids dressed, make sure they're dressed before they go out the door. We missed that once. The, um, uh, uh, get, get to work, do this, do that, get home, cook dinner, watch it. And then, when does our day start to stop? 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the evening? 
sit down to watch a bit of TV, go to bed. The way our Western mind works is, I earn my rest. The day starts with me working and ends when I've earned my rest and can go to bed and sleep. The Gospel says your day starts as you lay your head on your pillow at the end of the day. The day begins when you go to bed at 11 o'clock. When you are doing nothing. When God is restoring your body. When you are inactive and he keeps you alive. And then in response to his grace and rest through the night, then you get up and walk into the day. Do Do you see? Do you see? I hate the fact, and I use that word very reservedly, we're trying to teach Isaac not to use it. I hate the fact we have a week end. And our, day, our week starts on Monday, doesn't it? And I work 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 and I work. And when I've done five days full work, now I've earned my weekend. That's why the church historically said, the Sabbath begins the week. It begins with God and his work and you doing nothing. And in response to that, you work. Does that, does that make sense? Is there something to ponder there? So when Paul examines your life, will he say you're not sitting enough, you're not receiving, not realising God has done it? Will he say you're not kneeling enough, you're spiritually un- unhealthy because you're not... Will he say you're not walking enough? Will he actually say you haven't moved into the activist response of, of making life function? Abraham Kriper, who was Dutch Prime Minister actually at the turn, well, up until about 1905, a theologian, a pastor, died in 1920. He very famously has said this, he says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! I think we can reverse that as well though. I think we should say there is not a square inch in the whole domain of my human existence over which Christ, who I submit to, I don't cry, yours. Do you see that every aspect of our life we say it's yours and I'm going to walk in a manner that honours you. So sit, kneel, walk, and then finally stand. The final position, if you like, that Paul says we should exercise our spiritual bodies in, which is his summary of the second half of chapter 6, chapter 6 verse 10 onwards. Most of all, we must not forget life is worth fighting for. Look how he uses the word stand. Chapter 6, sentence 11. Put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Chapter uh, chapter 6 verse 13, he says it twice. Therefore put on the full armour of God so when the day of evil comes, you might might be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. And again in sentence 14, stand firm then. And here is some... Quite confusing language, and we spent a lot of time on it a few weeks ago, about the devil's schemes, and about us as soldiers, and about the battle that we're in. What's interesting is right at the beginning of this little section where he says we've got to stand, there's something about being unflinching, there's something about being strong, there's something about being a military-minded, aggressive soldier. Right at the beginning, it begins with the word finally in sentence 10. Do you see that there? 
Now the word finally there doesn't mean last of all. It's not Paul, the good preacher, indicating that he's coming into land. And Paul would have used the phrase coming into land if they'd had planes then, just so you know. It actually means not last of all, it means most of all. It's finally in the sense of this is the most of all to remember. That life is a battle. There is an enemy. Things get tricky and brutal and bloody and wounding and we must stand. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was first a medical doctor in central London and then became the pastor for many, many years of Westminster Chapel, right in the shadow of Parliament, built a huge church. He died in 1981. Writing from both a medical and a spiritual context, he said this. He said, I'm certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact the devil is being forgotten all is attributed to us. And he goes on to explain that though many, if not most things, are due to our folly and foolishness, if we think it's all about us, we begin to think the solution is all about us, don't we? And so his big point is, say, if you've wrongly diagnosed some of the heart issues, you cannot help but wrongly uh, seek to cure them, give the wrong kind of medicine. So let's pause. If Paul, the spiritual physiotherapist, came and examined your life, came and gave you the medical, I've had a few in my life for various things where you have to have a medical signed off. They're extraordinarily unpleasant experiences, aren't they? Where you have to go to the doctor though you're not sick. And one of the reasons is, is because in my paranoid little mind, I think they're going to find something disastrous. You can't help it, can you? Well, imagine Paul could fast forward and appear here this morning and set himself up in my office with some curtains closed so it's nice and discreet and each of us had a ticket for our appointment and our review of our spiritual health what would he say to you genuinely what would he say you need to sit more you are not spending enough time receiving realizing god has done it all you're too much of the activist Would he say you need to kneel more? Your heart attitude in surrender and worship and dependence is leaving you weak. That posture, that movement is lacking, starting to show. Would he say you need to walk more in a manner that honours Christ? Would he identify areas where you are not recognizing Christ says that's mine you're not responding by saying yes yours you're keeping a relationship or a wallet or a desire and saying that's not for you Jesus when I walk there I walk alone I'm not going to walk with you there Jesus and would Paul say you need to look closely at that you need to work on that Or is it in the stand? Actually, you're not realising there is something very true about the soldiering imagery, the solidness, the unflinchingness of standing against the devil's schemes. We're going to move into communion, and I'd like those questions that I've asked 
to carry us through. Because actually communion, which remembers Jesus' death, can speak to any one of those postures, can't it? It can remind us we need to sit and receive, that Christ has done it all in his death. It can remind us that we need to kneel and respond in reflection of his death. And at communion we can say, I praise you as the God who's done that. I surrender to you as the King. It can help us walk because we can come now to this representative of Christ's death and say, I need to bring an aspect of my life I am not walking with you in. Or it's how we stand ultimately, isn't it? It's Jesus' death which is the source of the very strength to stand when we feel we're being attacked. So I'm going to leave a moment's quiet and then Jeff, uh, if you'll lead us into a song and let, let the Spirit, let God just identify which posture you need to use communion to exercise and bring back to the forefront. Sit, kneel, walk, stand.